Well, good afternoon and welcome to uh, Seattle's Eastside Real Estate Podcast. I am Dan Edwards, Managing Broker with the Eastside Real Estate Team, and it is Wednesday, October 6th. Can you believe it's October 6th already? It's just flying by. Uh, one of those classic rainy fall weeks. Um, I hope you didn't get caught in the rain, but if you did, I hope you had your umbrella but we know those out there walking around with umbrellas are not from the Northwest. So um, us local Northwesterners, it's like liquid sunshine. So it's okay. We're all right with that. Now, if you are looking or if you're listening to this on Facebook or um, on YouTube right now, please smash the like button and uh, subscribe so that you're alerted of future podcasts that we got going on. We've got a great podcast today. Also, if you want to listen to past episodes, you can find them anywhere podcasts are podcasted, uh, both on Google uh, Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Um, today, we're going to be welcoming Christopher Casadas. Uh, personal injury attorney. He's a great dude. You're going to enjoy this conversation. And just so you know, we're, we've got live chat going. So if you are on Facebook or YouTube and you've got a question for myself with regards to real estate or um, uh, uh, Chris, feel free to chime in and we'll see if we can answer them in real time. Uh, but before we get started with our guests, it's time for some real talk. And today we are talking about what it takes to, uh, to uh, well, we got four simple steps to maximize the sale of your home this fall. Uh, the market has been incredibly hot. I kind of get tired of saying that a little bit, but um, just to give you a little recap, um, our last two offers we had with our client, uh, we had uh, 19 and 22 offers respectively, and the homes uh, went about 20% above asking price. So just to kind of get an idea of the type of market, when I say it's a hot market, that's what we're talking about. Now, what are the four? Uh, but however, even though it's a hot market, there are things you can do to maximize the sale of your price. And a lot of our premier listing program is designed to do that. We put you in position to get the highest possible outcomes in any kind of market. So um, here's here's the first tip number one. This probably won't surprise you, but price it right. So pricing is very crucial in this environment, especially understanding where properties are about to go. So just un, just pricing it based on where they're at is not a safe bet. It's always a good idea to look in that area, find out what the comparable homes have listed for and sold from, and then plan accordingly. So what that what I mean by that is if in your area you're seeing a list price to sales price of 8%, your expectation should be to list that home about 8% below what the final sales price is. Because buyers are pretty savvy and they're watching the market like hawks and they're going to see an opportunity that when a home comes on the market that seems to be priced at its end price, they're going to hesitate because they're going to think there's going to be a lot of interest and maybe they can't bid up another 8% above that asking price. So be very, um, very frugal with your projections, knowing that if you get that bidding war, there's opportunities to drive it past that 8%. All right. So price it right. Tip number two of four, keep it clean. Now that goes without saying, however, in the fall is really tough. You've got dogs, maybe you've got kids, maybe you've got rain, all of those kinds of things. And you got people storming through your house for a week on end. So one of the tips to keeping it clean is don't live there. That's right. Maybe take a weekend and drive somewhere sunny or fly somewhere sunny uh, the weekend you're going to list. That way you don't have to deal with the hassle of, um, well, uh, people traipsing through your home and they're actually not going to treat it like their home uh, yet because of somebody else's. So they may track in some stuff. 
Um, one of the things we do is we have the home professionally cleaned before, and uh, we make sure that we check on that house throughout the week to ensure that it hasn't gotten trashed. Uh, we have the open house on the weekends. We make sure it's cleaned up after open houses to just really make it show its best. Tip number three, make it easy to visit. That goes hand in hand with keeping it clean. Well, if you head out on vacation while you're listing your home, or if you're out of the house or at a friend's house or stay at a hotel, it allows for unlimited booking throughout that listing period. You don't want any hindrances whatsoever. Not only that, think about packing up FIDO or having to deal with um, somebody else's schedule. You just sit down for dinner and somebody wants to book an appointment. So I think that um, making it easy to visit is uh, very key to maximizing the show. It's a public place, right? So if you have the opportunity, go right ahead and take a short little trip. Or if you have a friend nearby, uh, take a, uh, go visit a friend for the weekend, something like that. All right. Um, the last one is to uh, help buyers feel at home. Now, this is kind of odd. How do you help buyers, especially when there's a lot of different buyers and have a lot of different flavors? Well, that's what we advocate for staging a home. See, staging a home is, uh, is, is an art form. And I think most stagers would uh, be offended if you told them that, um, uh, uh, that it was just a process because they really believe that what they're doing is creating an environment that appeals to a lot of people. And so um, I personally don't have a good eye for how to make a room like that. But our professional stages that we recommend do a great job. That when I walk in one of our homes that's been staged recently and I look at it and I go, hey, this is great. This feels good. But I wouldn't be able to create that. That's why we have people on our team that come in and help us help buyers feel at home. So there you have it. Four things. Price it right. Keep it clean. Make it easy to visit and help buyers feel at home. That's a recipe for success in any market. But in the fall market, that's the best way to go. And that's our Real Talk segment. All right. Thanks for watching. Now, uh, after this short commercial break, we are going to welcome in uh, Chris Cassidis, uh, an injury lawyer, a good friend of mine, and he's going to uh, chat with us about why it's important. But before we get to that, we're going to head into this short commercial break. Is your company planning a new office and you're wondering who can help you with the transition? Sean Tornquist with Seattle Modern Office helps local companies plan their new office, buy and install furniture, and even relocate existing furniture and equipment. Furniture planning and consultation is a free service at Seattle Modern Office. Sean will walk you through all the complicated steps of executing a major office transition and find you the best product solutions for office furniture to outfit the new space. He guarantees your vision for form and function at your new office can be achieved within your budget. To learn more, call Sean at Seattle Modern Office. Reach him by telephone at 425-761-9473 or online at www.seattlemo.com. Again, that is 425-761-9473 or seattlemo.com. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm Dan Edwards with the Eastside Real Estate Team. And welcome to our podcast. And here we have our good friend, Chris Cossidis, personal injury attorney. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. Hey, Dan, how's it? How are you doing? Doing great. Hey, do me a favor. If you could just turn down the volume a little bit, that might help alleviate an echo. Maybe not. You bet. You hear it okay? How's that? I think that's better. 
All right, very good. Well, listen, we're always looking to feature new guests and we really uh, love to have you here. So let's jump right in. But before, actually, before we jump in, I always have one question that I ask everybody that has been a part of the, um, the, the show here. And I want you to tell us about the home that you grew up in. You bet. I uh, grew up in a home, 1924 Octubre Street in El Paso, Texas. Uh, when you walk in our home, uh, the front was brick. Uh, it was rocks, as you would imagine, in the desert in the southwest. And when you walk in, uh, you go through the hallway. You look to your right. That was my mom and dad. They used to be realtors themselves. That's where they worked out of. Then you continue down the hall, look right. That's our living room and our kitchen. All the action in our house was in the kitchen. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. So um, I, I just know it's all like those memories, right? They bring back kind of the family, the importance. Um, El Paso, Texas is hot. And I kind of, kind of, you know, you didn't have to mow a lawn. That's kind of cool, right? It's the best. Well, we got a, it was party in the front, business in the front, party in the back, because we did have a lawn in the back. My dad made sure I mowed it. Uh, <laughs> so we can play tackle football. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Right on, right on. Okay, so let's jump in. Uh, you are a personal injury attorney, correct? That is right. All right, so what is personal injury law? Personal injury law, another word for it is tort. It's a tort. A tort has occurred, and nobody knows what that means, right? So for us, uh, somebody's been injured. Um, and for personal injury lawyers, you'll see at least our firm handles everything from you'll see a motor vehicle collision all the way to a wrongful death and, and everything in between. So if something has harmed another person, that's where you're going to see personal injury. Okay. So harming another person is considered a tort? That's right. Don't tort me. Don't tort me. You stop torting me. Stop torting me. <laughs> well, you know, and it's also a delicious bait to good. So oh, yeah. I think a lot of people get confused by that as well. Is that a tart? Lemon tart? Mm, I think there's a tort. And then in El Paso, there's tortas. So even better. <laughs> okay. So um, we were talking about the Bill of Rights and specifically the Seventh Amendment. What is that? So the Seventh Amendment is the right to a jury trial. It's one of the things that I love about Washington State. Uh, I moved here from El Paso, Texas, and by way of Arizona, my wife is an active duty Army member. She just retired this month. And one of the things in both states, uh, when COVID hit, uh, a lot of the courthouses were closed, and for good reason, especially in criminal trials. Uh, there's the confrontation clause, another great phrase, but the right to confront your uh, accuser. And for criminal cases, constitutionally, that's required. Well, in Washington state, same constitution, um, for civil cases, what, what they ended up doing, they used the technology, and they did and are knocking out Zoom trials. And the reason the Seventh Amendment, I mean, the reason any of us should believe and want that part of our constitution to be alive and well is that it puts one corporation or another individual and it allows us to look at them face to face and to say hey you have hurt me or my family in a way that you need to say sorry or another language is admit responsibility and compensate so you know i think for tort for civil law for personal injury there's a lot of different feelings because the insurance industry was very successful in putting out a lot of misinformation about why people would sue one another. 
But I think one way I would like to do it is somebody walked into your yard, took a bike, <laughs> took it and kept it. Um, if it was a $10,000 bike, you wouldn't just say, you know, I'm not the kind of person that, that sues people. There's two problems there, Dan. One, people have to be responsible for their actions. And then two, and that kind of behavior generally has to be deterred in society. You can't just look the other way. So it's not just for the good of your family, but it's the good of all the family. So Seventh Amendment means that when we have a jury trial, the power position is, you know, you have a judge, and if you want to have a judge trial, that's totally fine. But there's something powerful when a group of your peers, of your community, looks on another member of their community and they make a decision, you know, right or wrong. It's like, hey, you know, we don't believe your client. We find we find them not guilty, right? Or they're like, no, we do find them liable and we are going to award them this amount of damage. And, and the reason I say that is at the end of the day, if we're not policing our community, nobody else is going to do it for us. And I think that's a very popular way of looking about stuff. Somebody else is going to handle it. Somebody else is going to take care of it. But the reality is, if we can't trust a jury to do it, um, that would be a big system failure for the republic. All right, so let me let me unpack a lot of these things that you just kind of mentioned. First, Seventh Amendment is that amendment that is the right to a trial by jury, specifically, not just a trial by a judge. And personal injury, where you're kind of coming along here, is uh, the the desire to have your grievance with the person that torted you uh, or, or party that committed a tort against you uh, to be represented in court in front of your peers and say, hey, this guy did me wrong or this company did us wrong or whatever. And what, what do you say? And then have that jury actually go, yes, no, and here's the solution. That's fantastic. Exactly. Right, yeah, be lawyer. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, Dan. Actually, the first time I met you, I thought you were a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that says a good thing about you or a bad thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. What does that say about? Oh boy, I don't know. Don't put me in that. No, I'm just joking. Totally. <laughs> well, you know, so Dan, one thing that you mentioned um, as you were unpacking those thoughts, when you get twelve people in a jury. And the, the need to present your case and to ask them to make a decision on behalf of the community, uh, A, it's, the, it's disinterested power, right? Like the reason I say that is they're, not getting, they're getting paid you know, peanuts to do this, this important civic duty. And they're doing it for the good of society. One way or the other, they're doing it for the good of society. When individuals, when people tell me they don't want to serve on a jury, I'm always like, why? Why wouldn't you want to be there? I realize it's an interruption in life and there are good reasons to not be on a jury, but people get really into voting and you should vote. But one of the most powerful votes you'll ever have is in a jury room. If you are deliberating amongst your peers and making a decision for another individual and their life, that's, that's about as powerful as it's going to get. That is real power. Well, Chris, and I, I like that point of view. Um, I, I just recently read where King County is, is going to continue doing their jury selection via Zoom. Now, that doesn't mean the juries are hearing the cases via Zoom, is it? No, it, they have heard cases via Zoom. So they've gone back and forth. So um, at one point, 
they were doing jury selection, jury trials in the Maidenbauer Center. Um, another time they were doing the selection over Zoom and then having the trial at the Maidenbauer Center. The, the point though, I, I actually like the idea that we are allowing the jurors to be in the comfort of their own home. And you know, no, I haven't heard a lot of good stories about having to go to King County Courthouse right. um, for jury selection and all the things. We're already asking a lot of the jurors. And so they're coming in to a foreign place. They don't know where they're going. They're asked to do something they probably have never done before. And allowing them at least the comfort of using their own restroom, having a coffee, uh, being there as they go through the process, frankly, it saves taxpayer dollars. Like, I, I don't know why we wouldn't do that. There's been a lot about technology in the age of COVID that has really streamlined the process. And at least for the legal system, we need to move with that because we want we want our citizens to participate. Like, if, if the bar to entry is just because you live a little further and you don't want to deal with the traffic, let's just take care of that and let's do the jury selection via Zoom. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's great. great. And obviously, obviously, you know, we've had some very, fairly big uh, court cases that were decided by juries, right? And I think pointing out the the option here in the judicial branch to participate in our republic through that jury of the peers, I, I've never heard it put that way, you know, because I've never been asked to be selected. Now, I don't know if now suddenly I will be asked to be selected, but I would definitely uh, be, be honored to be in that position. And I think you got to kind of change a bit. Now, you said something in there about um, people say, well, I'm not the kind of person that would sue somebody. So what do you say to that? That's, that's one of my favorite questions because it's, I think a lot of people take it from the Bible. It's like, you're supposed to settle your account on the way to court. When you read that portion, if you read it, I, my interpretation is they're talking about the defendant that when you're like as the plaintiff and the person aggrieved if you're on your way to court and you've you've harmed somebody you've done something wrong settle with them quickly do not go in front of the jury and put this person through it mm. i think um it takes a lot of bravery to to be a plaintiff so the plaintiff is the person who's been wronged and who has to stick up for themselves that that's just how i look at it and i realize that even the way the the language of the pleading it's called a complaint you're making a complaint we don't like complainers in our society <laughs> right. but there's something to be said for you are not going to do that to me and you're not going to do that for my family i'm you know i'm from texas and we're big into the second amendment we love to carry our guns around open carry it's fantastic yeah. and regardless of your thoughts on open carry or the second amendment somebody really harmed your family what, what are you going to do? Are you going to go shoot them? It's called murder. You're not going to do that. What you are going to do if somebody harmed your family is you are going to have a lawsuit. And when you think of some of the great justice that's happened over the last century, um, when we think of our children who have been abused, it, are, it is the lawsuit, the complaint that's uncovered abuses, systematic abuses. And it starts with the voice of one person. And then somebody will be like, Chris, Chris, okay, fine. You can have the big lawsuit. I understand that. But what about a motor vehicle accident? What about a dog bite? Can't they just walk it off? Shouldn't they just shake it off? And so my answer to that is when, and we get a lot of 
tough clients. We had a fireman in here recently, super strong person who didn't, I'm not, again, I'm not the kind of person that would, would do a lawsuit. They were just trying to tough it out. And Dan, they need to have their medical bills paid. So this, this hero in the community um, was T-boned and has undergone significant damage and they're trying to tough it out. And we finally got into the place where he needs treatment. And so as he's getting treatment, the question is, like, is he really willing to have an expert, somebody with expertise in both insurance and medical, give them advice? I think that's a, probably a pretty good answer, and here's why. At the end of the day, all we're trying to do is get him back to his life, get him back to his community, and get him back to his job. And most people do not understand the complexity of the medical model. They don't understand the complexity of the insurance companies. And if you want to get people back to their people, their family, I would say you owe it. It's your decision, but you owe it to at least enter into the conversation of when somebody wrongs me, will I stand up and say, no, no, you're going you're gonna to pay for what you did. You're going to make sure that my medical bills are paid and I'm going to go on my way. Okay. So that's a good example, right? So a firefighter driving his car, accident happens. You know, a lot of people go through that and they let the insurance duke it out and then they get their personal injury uh, and they go maybe a massage here or there and then off they go. And you're saying somebody like that needs to stop and call somebody like you first. Right. You know, at the very least, you're getting like maybe it is like a case that isn't complex and you can handle it on your own but more often than not what you end up hearing are these secondary injuries like injuries like that you don't feel in in the moment of the collision because most people have a certain amount of adrenal, adrenaline rush so they did, they weren't paying attention to their head moving forward whipping back their head colliding the moment of loss of conscious, they're not thinking traumatic brain injury. They're not thinking cervical issue. What they are thinking is, I've got, they're thinking about their life. They're like, what do I need to do next? I need yeah, to get I out of the get car. I was on my way to the, pick up the kids. You know, how am I going to do that now? Yeah, I'm inconvenienced. And it just right. stop that as soon as possible. I've got to get this person's insurance. I hope I don't have to call the police. Uh, I don't want to sit here in traffic. I don't want to be the person on the freeway that is causing the jam. Most, I mean, people aren't thinking about a year from now and being in trial. They're thinking, okay, I hope this isn't as bad as it feels. Nobody wants it to be bad. Nobody. Yeah. So you, I'm sure you had a myriad of cases, but uh, do you have a favorite one? So I, I won't say this is my favorite case, but prior to... Being a personal injury lawyer, I was a, a judge advocate for the United States Air Force, and I served our country uh, in the Air Force, loved it. And I was assigned to uh, Guantanamo Bay as a defense attorney. And it was an interesting time. It was wow. 2008. And yeah. in 2008, for those youngsters out there who, who, wasn't, who were not paying attention to politics, Guantanamo Bay was a big issue. And the reason it was a big issue was they were talking about bringing the detainees to the United States and they were going to process them through our legal system, federal legal system. So that was the George Bush administration. And as we were gearing up to go to trial, uh, I had two clients. Um, one was 
a death penalty case, and we would fly down to, to Cuba, to Guantanamo Bay. And as we were preparing for trial, um, we started with motion practice and going through all of you know, the litany of cases. The, I think it's not the outcome because the case is still ongoing. The reason it was an interesting case for me was the day after uh, President Barack Obama came into office, it was like the wheels just stopped. It was like full stop. And I, I only bring it up because it's just like, I appreciate our legal system always moving the ball forward for our citizens. And just getting back to your point about the Zoom trial, I think that's what I appreciated about Washington State. It's like justice delayed is justice denied. Mm-hmm. And getting these people back to their lives and getting some finality to their cases, you know, is fantastic. For those individuals that were accused of crimes in Guantanamo Bay, you know, the ones that are still ongoing litigation, it's like nobody likes those open-ended questions, not as a society and certainly not for the accused. So I think that was my first, I liked it because it was such a lesson in what big power can really do to a whole system. Wow, that's very interesting. Great perspective. And I, I, that term uh, justice delayed is justice denied is, is so true. I feel like that as a, as a, as a human evolution, we could do this much faster than we're doing it right now. We could economize and move things along so that, so that like you said, people can move on with their lives, right? It, it, it does nobody, neither the victims nor the perpetrators, any good to tie, you know, just kind of delay. And is it a capacity thing? I mean, we, we don't need to get too deep in the weeds on that, but, you know, that's probably what keeps people away from doing a stupid lawsuit on a little injury case that means nothing to anybody, right? So what do you say to them? Yeah. For the for the most part, if you're a Washington resident, you're required to have insurance. So these dumb little cases, you've been paying your insurance premiums all of this time. And when it comes time for you to get the treatment you deserve, it's the least they can do is to honor their promise and their obligation to you to get you back to your life. And especially if you're the person who has been wronged, um, you know, don't take it. I guess I'll just say, don't take every. You know who deals with that is everybody around the person who's injured. Most people don't think that sleepless nights, um, pain in your back, your ability not to do your stuff, your things. Every if you're a CrossFitter, you like to CrossFit. Like all of all of those things add up, and you know what they end up being. That ends up being the currency of your whole life. That is your life. And you start taking things away and taking things away. I, I, w- I would say probably for parents out there, what kind of example are you setting for those around you, in your community and otherwise? Are you, it's something different. There was this weird thing back in the 90s. It's called, you know, it's tort reform. It's like too many lawsuits. My experience with car car collisions with um, dog bites with people who've been injured most people minimize their energy their injuries they don't they don't really want to own up to it. it i mean it shows it says something about our life is like we are we're not going to live forever whatever that is and when they get back to their life if they get back to their life that's the gold like going on the trips with your wife uh, being able to take the car ride be, if you're a motorcyclist, riding and feeling 
good as you go on those eight mile rides. I mean, what else, in the end, what else is there other than our relationships and the time that we have spent with others? I don't think there's much. Awesome, awesome. Chris, well, listen, I knew you'd be a great guest, and it's probably just the tip of the iceberg we could talk forever and ever. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, how do people get a hold of you? You bet, Dan. They can find us uh, on our website, lingenbrink.com, and that's really the best way to get a hold of us. Lingenbrink.com, okay. Let's see if I can put that up here. Uh, how do you spell that? L I N G E N B R I N K. Dot com. Okay. All right. We'll have to, have to do that at a later time. All right. Um, thank you, Chris. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, Dan. You have a good one. All right. Now, we're always looking for great uh, guests to feature on this podcast. So if you know of a small business in the area or somebody that would benefit uh, from uh, a conversation, we'd love to connect. Feel free to reach out to us at the eastsiderealestateteam.com. Thanks to my guest, Chris Casares <laughs> uh, with Lincoln Break uh, Law. And um, if you're also thinking about buying, selling, investing in real estate, give us a call. Dan Edwards with the Eastside Real Estate Team. Thanks for watching.